You are listening to a Laison Lumineur podcast. Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Laison Lumineur. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. This occasional series records our lectures and gallery talks, insights from new publications, and interviews with collectors and scholars. Our aim is to offer an ever-wider public tools for learning about the diversity of our activities and the breadth of our interests. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. You are at the Benjamin Zucker Collection of Diamonds exhibition. I'm very, very pleased tonight to introduce um, John King for the second of our three events. This is the second podcast, too. And John, as I think many of you know him, he's the chief quality officer at the GIA here in New York and also an artist. I have a book of some of his drawings here as well, and has published really widely on diamonds, diamond cutting, on colored stones, um, and Benjamin tells me that he's maybe handled more diamonds in the world than almost anyone, hundreds and maybe even many thousands of diamonds. (laughs) So tonight's uh, little presentation, which we're going to run as the last one, as a, as a Q&A, a question and answer, is entitled, The Four C's and Historic Diamonds. So I thought I would start by saying all of you are probably very sophisticated diamond connoisseurs, but maybe for some of you who might not be, the title may seem a little unusual. So I thought I would start and just say what the four C's are and then turn it over to John. So it's carrot um, or weight, cut, color, and clarity. And I actually printed out from the GIA's website a chart of the four C's, which is um, on the table here. And I thought I would start by asking John, now that you all know what the four C's are, um, if he can comment on the relationship between this relatively modern system and terminology of classification and historic diamonds, that is, diamonds that are not made today, but um, anywhere from the 13th century up to the 18th as this collection. So I turn it over to you, John. And I do think there are uh, very direct analogies between today's current four Cs and what we would think of for historic diamonds. Like for example, in uh, in the ancient times, uh, color was valued, colorlessness was valued as it is today, is one of the C's, is color. Pure crystals, when they were found, would be much more highly valued, so clarity is a factor there as well. Size certainly was and is a factor. You know, the larger the crystal, the rarer they are, and therefore that would be a value. And for the cut factor, um, I would liken it to the form of the crystal itself. And the more uh, geometric and pure that form was, the more, I think, in awe anybody would have been to discover that. So there was very much a play 
in the uh, ancient times, I think, with uh, evaluation factors like that. I thought we might take some of the individual C's, for example, color, and talk about how they might apply. I mean, color, when you read about um, Indian diamonds, these are mostly Indian diamonds. It's before the Brazilian mines. It's before um, the mines in South Africa. And when you read descriptions of these, you don't read about the four C's at all. They're often called things like limpid and watery and transparent. And I think if you went to a jeweler today and ordered your diamond and asked him for a limpid diamond, he might um, look at you and say, what? <laughs> so uh, maybe you could discuss this terminology. It's and um, so true. I mean, and I think the terms have changed. And I mean, you used to, Indian uh, used to kind of value these for different parts of the body based on different colors. And so the colorlessness were, you know, really reserved for the kings and were worn high up on the body. Some certain colors were worn lower, were like on the ankle. They might refer to blood as a color. But I also know that, you know, some of the words we would use for color are different than how we would use them. So, you know, the, the C was often referred to as, you know, more violet. And I think we think more blue, but certainly Color in diamond is extremely rare, noticeable color. Most of it is very, very subtle tints um, that you may not see unless you're under pretty refined conditions. So to uh, be able to find diamonds that show noticeable color, like one of the diamonds I encourage you to see in the Dutch rose over there in the corner, uh, is a rarity, it really is. But this quality of stones to uh, to appear so limpid, so pure and colorless that it's like looking through a glass of water is one of the things that was treasured and first noted about some of the really valuable and important Indian diamonds. Like we have these like big blow-ups which are easier to see than the actual little tiny diamonds. I mean, is there a blow-up of a diamond on the wall that you would call limpid? Or are they all limpid? Well, I think certainly some of these crystals that are so pure, you know, they, they would embody that kind of idea. It's hard to see in the mounting because the mounting begins to obscure parts of the stone and also reflect a lot through the stone. Uh, I think valuing, as was done in the, er in the earliest Indian stones, valuing the raw crystal itself was the time when they were able to experience those things. And today we are very fortunate when we're, when we're able to see some of these historic stones and put into perspective those qualities that are so unique. Yeah, thanks. Another question that has come up, it's all the, related to your four C's, um, is the question of cuts. Because, I mean, here we go, this is a very pedagogic exhibition as well as having diamonds of wonderful quality. And we go from octahedral to point to table, rose, brilliant. And I wonder if you can comment on, I mean, of course, it's always said that the cut releases the either brightness or brilliance of the stone. You've explained to me already that I shouldn't say brightness, but maybe you could explain. Um... I, think, uh, I, I think the cutting is a, a magical dimension that came probably hundreds of years later after people started appreciating diamond. And if we look around at many of these pieces, you'll see that they're crystals. 
They're mountain crystals. And I think what peaked people would be every once in a while you'll see a crystal with the faces that are quite smooth and you can see right in it. And I think the desire to achieve that, the desire to be able to somehow duplicate that natural state that was so rarely found was just a, a quest that cutters would come from. Now the earliest stones would be two stones rubbed together, you know, kind of reshape an edge, you know, kind of create a, a different kind of volumetric feel to it by kind of rubbing them. And you know, that later became known as a kind of brooding process, how yeah. stones would get rounded up. Um, but other than that, for, for centuries, it was, you know, rubbing a stone back and forth to create some kind of edge to it. Like um, the point cut. Like the point cut, oh, exactly. Here. So at a time when one was able to you know, find, realize you know, that you can take the dust from a diamond, mix it like with an olive oil, and rub that diamond, you could, over the days and days and days and weeks, polish those facets. And that's really where the point cut was one of the first. So it was taking an octahedron and smoothing those facet edges even more. But you can imagine stones chip, stones get damaged, uh, will break through the biggest fallacy. Diamonds are hard, it's not the same as durability. So they're highly resistant to scratching. That doesn't mean they can't break. But so, but so for example, um, this um, a point cut diamond, like yeah. these, this Renaissance point cut diamond, that is not achieved by slicing the edges it's achieved by um I think in situations like this that would be a very unusual thing to cleave to see a cleavage see. plate mm -hmm. um, but i'm sure that happened i'm sure that there were uh, crystals that had cleaved and again i think those were probably the earliest revelations of what was possible with this gem you know the the way you would see you know a cleaved face and the bright light reflecting off of it. it. had to just be an amazing experience. And I think one that you say, how can I duplicate this? How can I achieve this? What, what has to be done? And slowly you begin to see how polishing would do things. Now you, you talk about going from a point cut to the table cut. Again, that could have been, that could have been one of these tips breaks off. Mm. And I, again, by you know, the pressure of rubbing on diamond dust, you create a flat facet instead of a jagged break. But in doing that, you create a visibility into a new world, a whole new world. Now you're, uh, you're looking into, into and through this diamond and light now enters in a different way and returns to the eye differently, creating a different kind of patterning, more than just bright light coming off a surface, it was now entering, absorbing, and returning to the eye and creating patterns that I think must have been a magical thing to first start to see that in these crystals. So a, a ring like this um, ring, this Harari ring would have been, you know, that would have been the brightness. And we see it here in these Very pictures so. too. Interesting. And then what, since we're talking about cuts, I think that you've worked also on the technological aspects. I mean, to go from point to table mm -hmm. and then rose and brilliant, can you explain what technically uh, that meant at the time? Yes. I mean, it really, it, the, that movement from table cut to, and even as we see here, 
the start of even more additional facets really took the, the whole revolution, the whole revolution in technology. Because it uh, uh, wasn't until the time where there was a continuous motion wheel that it allowed cutting to advance in much greater ways. And when is that? 1600? Yes. About? Yes. In that mm -hmm. kind of time, 1500s, 1600s. So then you, and those were, that's where advances started coming and, and cutting started taking place in Europe. Stones being uh, shipped to Europe, being moved by caravan, eventually a sea route. Uh, and that then allowed for much more refinement to the faceting of the stones. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, uh, I think the, you know, man's <coughs> effort to constantly learn and improve and grow. And that gave the ability to put these facets on this kind of form and begin to create those domes. Often, at first, those were fairly shallow, you know, fairly shallow uh, crystals. Uh, and it was a way to create a kind of light pattern that people hadn't seen before. And you could take, um, if I understand it right, a point cut or a table cut and make it into a rose cut if it was a substantial enough stone. Right, right. And you can imagine how that begins, you know, so you're often focused on working part of the stone, but it's not long till somebody begins to think, well, what if I do things like that to the bottom of the stone? What's going to happen? And you begin to then see this work happening to fashion the pavilion of the stone, the bottom part. And uh, again, I think that you look at some of the table cuts and those being modified you know, into mazarine cuts and the peruzzi cuts. So that uh, constant plays with light and probably a little bit of practical work. You know, how do I get rid of this indentation in this crystal? Um, how do I repair that? So the combination of you know, practical means and experimentation just continued to grow. And it's why I think things continue to change throughout the next 500 years. Technology continues to grow, allowing uh, manufacturers to do more and very different things. But we've talked about table and, and point and rows. So what about the change from rose to brilliant? They already have the cutting machines by that point. Correct. So it's really just, as you said, releasing more of the brilliance of the stone and working the underside? Or I would, I would assume there is a bit of play between recutting table cuts. There's a lot of recutting of table cuts that was going on into rose cuts. But uh, there was uh, still these rough crystals. And you think of the kind of classic octahedral shape that one would be starting from. But now with technology to allow you to facet it more completely and to really think of this as you know, sculptural, as a three-dimensional object. And at that point, um, they were able to really begin to flatten that top facet because they know how that brings light back through to the eye and uh, at times begin to round the crystal, which is sort of squarish in its natural outline by rounding those corners sometimes uh, or rounding the whole crystal, then uh, placing more facets on the bottom of the stone and the array of facets that was sort of developed, these triangular facets developed in the rose cut 
into more kite-like shape as well as triangular facets for the brilliant cut. I think one of the things that's so interesting is how these earlier cuts actually are named for shapes. You know, point is octahedral, point is a shape, table is a shape. We can all imagine that it's like a table. Roses, we can all imagine a flower. And suddenly we have a term that isn't a shape yeah. anymore. <laughs> right. Um, right. Who named the brilliant cut the brilliant cut? Do we I... know? don't know. I would have turned to Benjamin before. <laughs> but I don't. I don't. Uh, it likely became more Western oriented. Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly from that, it could well be that it's more descriptive. It became more, you know, mm -hmm. cut descriptive than it was evocative, as was the case in some of those others. Um, so, and then terminology has continued to, at times, relate to the believed inventor of a cutting style, mm -hmm. um, like the, the Mazarin cut, you know, is an example of that. But I think then it becomes more about shape and type of faceting mm -hmm. in terms of how they began, began to be described. I wanted to go back briefly to color because we have this extraordinary um, pendant, which actually the GIA, I don't have the original here, but the GIA actually did a book and a study that you were very involved in. And I wanted to ask you a little about, I mean, I, I always think of color as being like the rarest thing possible. And, you know, you see these $80 million dime, pink and blue or whatever, yellow diamonds at Sotheby's and Christie's. But can you um, tell us a little about color in historic stones, not, or maybe they are historic stones at Sotheby's and Christie's? Occasionally they are. I mean, uh, when we think of like historic Indian diamonds, for example, um, much of the documentation is probably from the, the same time we're talking here, 15th century, you know, around that time frame. There was a uh, noted gem merchant and traveler called, named Jean-Baptiste Tavernier who bought uh, diamonds, crystals in India and was sort of the, uh, the broker for uh, King Louis XIV. 14th. 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 So um, Tavernier kept records of all he was doing and we learned from him that he brought back to Louis the uh, diamond that became known as the French blue you know, a 112 carat blue diamond, as well as the table diamond, which was a pink diamond. Um, so there's some historic stones like that, but uh, we also know the Agra diamond, which was originally 32 carats, uh, was believed to be in the Mughal Emperor Babur's collection. Uh, so these are really, really important. The, uh, the Princey diamond was also uh, from the Nazim of Hyderabad's collection. So these are so all pre-1700, exactly. more or less. And, and that's where, and knowing the provenance is so wonderful because it allows us to understand those things. Like we know uh, there was really no significant diamond production or uh, trading uh, other than India up until the discovery in Brazil in the uh, 1700s. So when you know diamonds are uh, dated earlier than that, you have a pretty good idea that they could be from, could be of Indian origin. And um, I mean, today, knowing the kind of colors of some of these stones, I mean, they're so rare. 
and you never see any of them today. The, the French blue is, the, the Hope Diamond is believed to have been recut from the French blue. The French and blue was stolen from the uh, crown, from the French jewels in the revolution and uh, never, never found again. Although a blue diamond showed up in London within about 20 years, much lighter, different shape, uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, and that's the Hope Diamond. Colors like that, I mean, diamonds of that size, I mean, I, I've not seen anything that duplicates that in my career. And you've handled these, you've handled the Hope Diamond, the Wittelsbach, the, yes. most of these famous yes. diamonds yes. too. And it's very interesting um, if we get a, a little, you know, kind of from the tech side of gemology, diamonds are, um, they're often classified into two different categories. And it's based on, from a science point, nitrogen content. Most diamonds are called type one. They have high nitrogen content within their lattice structure, their chemical structure. Uh, the other type is type two, and it's like an absence of nitrogen. So they're, they're thought of as being very chemically pure. So there's a beautiful kind of like metaphor to that. Um, these blue diamonds are type two. Many of the uh, Indian pinks are type two. The Dresden green was also an Indian stone and it is type two. Is this type two here, this no. green? No, that yeah, one Do we have any isn't. type twos here? No, I don't know if we do. <laughs> but what's interesting is it's the same diamond type as some of the very famous colorless stones hmm. as well. And some of the recent research that we've done at GIA has uh, allowed us to determine that these diamonds actually occur at a whole different depth within the earth than all the other diamonds. So alluvial diamonds, which of course are on the surface, are almost never going to be type 2, or well, is that they, not right? No, they can be, because the alluvial essentially are uh, diamonds that have come from another location. They've been moved through by a, like a water source, for example, after uh, erupting and coming to the Earth's surface. Mm. Um, so they could be from anywhere like that. And but I find that poetry is just amazing. Though. And the, this type one, type two, I mean, can you tell by looking at a diamond or is this something that has to be scientifically it's tested? tested, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. But it's kind of a fascinating point. You think, what are the conditions that much deeper in the Earth? And the magic of those things coming together over billions of years is mm -hmm. just kind of mind-boggling. I wonder, um, we were talking about the diamonds you've, you've handled. Do you have a favorite diamond? I don't mean among Benjamin Zucker's collection. <laughs> I mean among, you know, is the Hope Diamond your favorite diamond? Or... There's, um, I'm, I'm certainly um, totally enamored with colored, colored diamonds, mm -hmm. for sure. Which you've done and a lot I've, of research uh, on, too. Actually, I told some people recently the story that there was a diamond I saw in the first few years when I started at GIA, that um, I was grading it and suddenly it caught me and stopped me cold, and I never forgot it. Mm. And saw it resubmitted to the laboratory about three years ago. Wow. It was so, and it was, yeah, today's, today's grading, it would be a vivid blue uh, pear shape. So that stone has always stood out, it really was. Wow. <laughs> That's great. Well, I mean, we want to have some time for people to um, ask you questions too. John has many projects. He's um, exhibited drawings in many, institutions throughout the world and 
um, as a noted draftsman and artist, apart from being a 40-year yeah. career at the GIA as now the chief quality officer. And I haven't had a chance to look through this book yet, but for example, a project he has shows an uncut stone, which is like 100 times, I don't know, maybe 100 is an exaggeration, a rough, um, and then the cut version. Am I explaining yeah. this yeah. right? Well, I did. I, you know, there was a long time where I sort of felt these two parts of my life were at arm's length, but I've come to realize they never have been. And there's a lot uh, of crossover that occurs, both in the way I, the way I make marks, the way I observe, the, the observation that one uses in gemology, I find is really the way I observe when I'm drawing. And the, the speed at which I work is similar to the, the speed at which one would go about, you know, working and grading a diamond. And I've thought about these things. I've thought about, you know, the, the qualities with diamond and some of the, you know, kind of wonderful metaphors that they lend themselves to. So I had, over the years, had um, a number of different thoughts on projects I would love to see realized or installations I would do. And I put them all together in this book and I called it 10X Plus. And I thought of it that way because in diamond grading, 10X plus is the aspects of the diamond that a diamond grader would come across, would see, but it wouldn't go into the final decision making because it's not, uh, it's not considered the, the power at which decisions are made to diamond grade. And I think of that like what happens in the studio. There's much that goes on, there's things behind the scene, there's little things that nobody would ever know that all comes out to be the final product. We think of the phrase in our industry that takes a ton of ore to yield a uh, one carat rough diamond. So I always thought, well, I would love to kind of fill a gallery space with a ton of ore and then have a set with just a one carat rough diamond. Or uh, I took uh, models uh, of actual diamonds, three different colors, and again, the value of color, and I created uh, 3D models of these stones uh, to, scale, to the different scale at which they would be for their relative value in the marketplace as finished stones. So there was a pink, there was a brown, there was a colorless. And so the pink was you know, 10 times larger than the brown and five times larger than the colorless. And so they were to be scaled at that side in an installation. So, and uh, I've written a little bit. I've, I've written reviews on diamonds as if they were uh, a piece of sculpture in an exhibit. And I think all of this is a ways of coming back and forth. So I think whether it's just in my practice working or when I travel um, or bringing it back full circle into some of these other bigger projects has been kind of interesting for me to now try to bring all these things together again and think how they're all one, not separate. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, I, it, just um, one very um, last and sort of um, brief and technical thing. Now, as I understand it, if I took this diamond and I went to the GIA with it and said, I want a GIA certificate for this, you could not give me this because the diamonds are mounted in a stone and this GIA certificate, which again, as I understand it, you can't buy a diamond nowadays, an important diamond, without having one of these certificates. Everyone will ask for that. But it's, it would be impossible to get that for 
most historic diamonds that are set. Is that correct? It's the mounting is obscuring a lot of the stone and it's it's limiting what you can see. So um, it would be it would not be a, the kind of reporting we would do for a loose diamond where we're able to really examine it three dimensionally from all angles. Um, but we're working on it. Ooh, wow. <laughs> um, we, you know, there is the realization that there, uh, there could be some kind of modified way of talking about mounted diamonds that's still useful. Mm -hmm. So we continue to look at that. Today, uh, the, the likelihood would be a reporting that would ensure it is a natural diamond. Mm -hmm. you know, so we would identify it. Uh, and that would be the kind of approach we would use for it. But we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be trying to uh, assess the clarity or the color. The yeah, or know exactly what the weight would be because uh, the mounting has such an impact on the appearance. I mean, yes, but I had this little diamond lesson um, earlier in the week um, from Benjamin Zucker and some of his partners. And I, we looked at three carat, three carat, three carat, three carat. And I came back thinking, oh, I'm going to be able to tell you what the carats are here. I mean, I understand that, um, that you can't see the whole thing, but you can certainly look at a diamond like the pointed diamond and know that each of those are more than one carat. Correct, correct. Um, so. And normally what uh, a jeweler would do, or we would do if we could in the lab, and we did this with, with the, the brooch. Mm -hmm. So by, by you know, getting an estimate of length, width, and some idea of depth, mm -hmm. uh, you, can, you, know, we, you know the specific gravity of diamond, and there's a formula that could give you an estimated weight. And maybe even eventually machinery that could like see through the metal or other settings and actually give you a realistic, yeah. fully realistic idea. Um, I, I want to give people a chance to interact with John and ask questions. I think we're really, really very honored that he came and talked to us today. This is the diamond man in the whole world, 40 years GIA. He's really developed the GIA diamond program and you've had the opportunity to hear a little about his work as well. So I would like to open it up for questions. Oh, Barbara, quickly. The other night we had a dinner and you said, I, I love this part, you said that diamonds are alive. And um, so I was wondering if you could say something more about that they're alive, the diamonds. Yes, we were talking about that and we talked, you know, and, and it's, you know, one can initially think you mean, oh, well, it's the person moving and making it seem like there's action and moving. But I think there's also, you know, um, at some of the atomic levels, these things are constantly changing. Some of them react to light. You know, there's a, a type of diamond called a chameleon diamond. And it's called that because if it's... Uh, kept in the dark for an extended period of time, you know, and then brought out to the light, the color changes. Or if it's gently heated, it will change. There's diamonds, you know, when they fluoresce under UV light, that's a, a reaction at an atomic level of change that's happening within the diamond itself. I think, you know, you, you hold a diamond and the way it transmits heat and cold and, you know, you can look at that from a science place, but I think there's a, a real kind of metaphor there, too, about the aliveness of these materials. And, of course, 
and I, my, my colleagues who would talk in geologic terms, you know, certainly think they're always changing and they've been growing for billions of years and they just keep going through all these kind of cycles. Benjamin. Um, if you take a super white D diamond and you put it on a desk in India and you watch it all day long and it gets to be very, very bright, as you well know, in India, do you think the fluorescence in the atmosphere changes that diamond color during the daytime? Um, I think that you know different diamonds are going to react different to UV and to the UV content in daylight. I think it can, depending on the particular diamond, have an effect that would cause it to look quite different. Um, I think you know the lighting conditions around the world are all and the lighting conditions indoors are all going to affect how we see you know how we see color how we see appearance and um, you know I think the same diamond on that desk in uh, Bombay is going to look different if it were sitting on a desk in Antwerp and different in New York and different in a uh, gemological viewing environment in a laboratory for many in our industry one of the most frustrating things but it's also, I think, one of the most beautiful things about it. This constant kind of change that comes as you change the environment with it. The UV uh, effect on diamond, it will vary from, most diamonds are inert but to UV, but there are uh, some that will have uh, a fluorescent effect and emit uh, a different strength of the color. The vast majority are blue. Um, but there are some cases where they'll fluoresce yellow. They sometimes could be green, orange. Uh, orange, red is one of the kind of classic associations with the quote-unquote India Golconda diamonds. But these are not permanent changes. I mean, it's not like um, lapis or azurite, where in, used as pigments in medieval manuscripts, they actually are, 500 years later, transformed. A diamond is not going to transform itself just during the day. Is that right? Right. right. Yeah. I want to follow up on the color question because um, on separate occasions I visited the Diamond Museum in Ghent and also in Antwerp, and they both said that it's the lighting in their locales that influence the color rating. So is it Ghent or is it Antwerp, the light, and which of those cities or is neither Everyone's going to battle it out and say, my light's right. <laughs> um, it's been uh, certainly I'd, over, I'd say, you know, the past 40 years, it's been a topic of debate. What's the right lighting? Uh, what's the right light standard in which to view diamonds? Purists would say still today it's north daylight, uh, kind of traditional lighting that's, and not just north daylight, but north northern European daylight. And that's a kind of you know standard from historic times. Gemologists today look for uh, most often a light source that simulates daylight, midday daylights, you know, north light. Uh, we often look for like a, what's a, a kind of white light and a fairly high color calibration. We believe that the light source should have a UV content to it because daylight does and Ultimately, you do observe these things out in the world. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I had a question from, from earlier in what you were saying. Um, 
I got completely muddled about hardness and breakables. Ah. And they're, they're not brittle. You wouldn't, are they or are they? Well, one of the uh, one of the ways it would be certainly along you know the the way the diamond forms is if you think of it almost like wood in a way like wood grain and you think if you're chopping wood you want to chop with the grain you know and you kind of split it by hitting through the grain a diamond would be like that too so some of the earlier ways of splitting a crystal would have been to you know to break it along that cleavage plane and. No, but uh, over time, diamonds do get kind of what we refer to as wear and tear. They'll get banged up, and they can have little dings and marks. They can chip very easily, um, you know. And certainly, sometimes the the cut can uh, either help or hurt that. So, if uh, a cut is uh, such that it's creating a very sharp point, or it uh, that that plane between the top and the bottom of the stone comes to a very fine edge, that's much more susceptible to chipping. Uh, now, it's the hardest substance, so you're not going to scratch it very easily. But there are these, you know, there, these other situations where they can be damaged. Yeah. I have another question about color. Mm. Um, because, um, Historically, there must have been quite a lot of, from my understanding, in my lifetime, there seemed to me a period where nobody wanted a colored diamond, and they were considered really basic colors. And if you had one, it was a mistake. <laughs> and, and now, of course, it's completely the reverse yeah. in yeah. terms of value and desirability. So presumably, this has a history, not only in my lifetime, but from the time of yeah. Well, they're, they were very rare, as they, still, as they still are. So the norm was somewhat near colorless type stones, uh, or just little tints of color. Uh, and I think you're right. Most people didn't know what to do with a you know, colored rock. And uh, many of the times I remember hearing you know, some of the diamond dealers, when they would receive their box from De Beers, you know, the, they would just take those and they would just go in the back of the drawer because they just didn't know what to do with them. Um, now, the important colored diamonds like we were talking about before have always been revered. You know, Viagra, the Hope, the, the Wiedelsbach, I mean, truly magnificent stones. But um, the kind of more normal-sized things, people were not so sure. And uh, I think it's really been a, quite a kind of total change in mindset in particular in the last like 30, 35 years. And there was a confluence of events at that point that I think really began to change all of it. And that was a combination of technology, uh, the discovery of a new mine, and some of the auction houses, work going on at the auction houses, and museum exhibitions. So this was a point where the Argyle Mine in Western Australia began to come online. And it's the first mine that the predominant output was colored diamonds. Uh, much of it brown, but they had this small little percentage of these exquisite pinks. And then there were these other museum displays going on, Eddie Elzis's collection of gems, um, the Gamuchian collection of colored gems, colored diamonds. All this began to build momentum in, around uh, colored diamonds. And uh, I think as we then went into the 90s, it just started to kind of explode.
I think as in all fields of art and uh, marketing is so critical. I mean, one can imagine right. a time where maybe octahedral and point cuts will be all the rage, you know, <laughs> in 10 years or next year. Yeah, it just yeah. takes like, you know, some sort of um, effort. Uh, you had a question, John. John, you have some wonderful and um, poetic writings about diamonds and their color. And you know that one I uh, quite enjoyed is when you discuss the color pink in diamonds, but also in contemporary art uh, paintings. Can you share some of that? Well, I, the first time the pink star went to auction, which is a 59 karat vivid pink diamond, internally flawless, I just found it kind of a fascinating stone and you know to think of that quality of color and how that is formed really by hand like you would be painting because the painting on of every facet and finding those facets I mean in today's world a lot of diamonds are more as we would say machined you know they're cut a lot of it instrumentally but when you get to large stones like this it's still hands-on and uh, I started likening a lot of those things to like looking at a painting, how that painting's formulated, the support for it, how it's sculpted and shaped, and how every decision's leading to this kind of form. And I thought of it very similar to um, you know, the kind of like minimalist color field painters and what they were trying to achieve with one all over color. And I think those things you know, kind of struck me, so I tried to write about that, like, and I was saying earlier about writing about a diamond as if it's like on display in a gallery. So. John has agreed to talk uh, amongst you. Um, feel free also, of course, to take a closer look at the, the diamonds. Now you can like, identify them all and give their <laughs> color, weight, clarity, et cetera, um, yourself. So thank you so thank you. much. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a Les en Lumière podcast. We are exhibiting next at Fine Arts Paris between November 13th and 17th in the Carousel du Louvre. I'll see you there. You can reach us online through our website, lesenlumière.com or through Twitter and Instagram at Les Enlumineurs. You are always welcome to visit one of our galleries in New York, Chicago, or Paris during our exhibitions or to make an appointment with one of our specialists. Thanks for listening.